Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to our final episode before we take a wee little bit of a break. Um, I am Jennifer White and I'm here with Ellen Trackman, who is always phenomenal and wonderful. Oh, so kind. Uh, Yay. So uh, Ellen, I think it's interesting and I think this is just more of a like softball share it with with everybody who listens. But we get, of course, we talk to our guests off offline before we ever interview them, right? And we get asked this question and I think it, it kind of struck both of us today really hard um, and because we were asked by this specific guest. Um, <laughs> what? What's that? I don't think we've been asked this in a while or ever. I've been asked. Oh, really? I've been asked. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but the question was, why, what made you guys start this podcast? Why do you do this? So, yeah. so Ellen, why... Why? What do you I think, think I paused and was like, I don't remember why <laughs> we started. Why like, we what, actually started it. But I mean, I do. No, no, I remember like yeah. the root of it. And no, I, I, I will say my, my simplistic version is like, we just feel like we didn't want people to be alone. But I think you have yeah. a much more impassioned response than I do. Oh, yeah. No, just being in this area of um, assisted reproductive technology with surrogacy and egg donation and sperm donation. I know I just have you know, client after client who's like, has anyone ever done this? What's this like? And I think it was really hard to find stories of what people had been through. And so, you know, it's not big statistics or anything, but it's like personal story after personal story, as well as talking to experts. I think it's been really nice to, to have that resource for those people who like podcasts to get to hear different stories and what things meant to them um, and to get the experts to talk. And it's really expanded. You know, we started with just assisted reproductive technology and that's still kind of our core, but it's grown to be that families are made in different ways and that's incredible. And there are all different kinds of ways to, to make a family and define who you are to define who family is. Yeah. No, it's been an incredible and enriching and far more rewarding experience than I even could have imagined when we started. So um, today we get to talk to somebody who talks about defining, I guess, not even defining, just about how the definition of her family has changed over the course of her life. Welcome, Cara Rubenstein Dayeron, to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. You have such a really fascinating personal life story, and I we really appreciate you being willing to show to share that with everyone. We're hoping that it could be helpful for someone who has been through something similar or um, can you know take something from it as well. Uh, and I have to tell you, I have learned so much from you just in the few times we've talked. All these different acronyms, um, and I think one of them to start kind of the introduction of what we'll be talking about is this NPE which I had not heard until recently. Cara, what does NPE stand for? So you'll get different answers to that, depending on who you ask. I use um, not parent expected. It it, it originates from a non-paternity event. So in genealogy, when people were creating a tree and people were not sure of the parentage, usually the father, uh, because back in the day. Well, that makes sense back in the day, yeah. (laughs) they would write MPE next to it, non-paternal event. And so that, mm. that you know, maybe the person on the tree wasn't the father. Yeah. Um, but I like not parent expected. And I use this term really broadly. Uh, I decided early on, 
I was, I kept saying, well, donor conceived, adopted, you know, all these different people who yeah. have, you know, discoveries at some point in their life. Um, we're all MPEs in my mind. So you can be an <laughs> MPE. It's usually, you know, it means you have a parent who's your parent that you just didn't realize was your parent. So not parent expected. Mm-hmm. And yours was, was also a surprise when you, you had no expectation that when you took a DNA test as an adult, that you would come up as an NPE. No, no hint of that before. No hint in my mind. I mean, I was constantly asked. Um, so I was raised half black and people would, would constantly question my ethnicity. I have sort of a swarthy look. I look, people often think I'm Greek <laughs> or um, uh, Hispanic, Middle Eastern. And I would say that I no, I'm half black. And they would say, really? And I would say, yes. Um, I'm sure that got super defensive after a while. So you're like, yes, seriously. How many times right. has somebody asked me this question? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, so I, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life defending my identity because people, you know, questioned that, that part of me, but I thought it was true. Um, I never questioned my parentage at all. Although I should say my father, who's on my birth certificate, Kenny, he didn't raise me. He left before I was born and I didn't really, I met him in my teens. Mm-hmm. We really didn't get to know each other well until after I had my own children in my thirties. And if you don't mind, do you want to tell a little bit about kind of your birth story growing up to give a little background? Cause even though I understand that even though you didn't meet him until you were a teenager, you actually were very close to his family, which is you know, your say, family. You- we joke a lot about like, go back to the beginning, tell us about your life from the very start. But in this case, go back to the beginning. Tell us about your life from <laughs> right. the very, very moment of start. <laughs> um, my my family history is, is kind of crazy. Um, I grew up in Seattle and it, like I just said, with just my mother, she was a single parent. Um, Kenny was a heroin addict and um, they were married for a short period of time. And then while well, he was clean and then he got back into heroin. And so my mom said he had to go. And I didn't really, you know, you think you look back in these things and you think, oh, did I know about, you know, who my father was? When did I have an idea about my, my family? Um, and, I, and I'm not sure, I don't remember ever thinking who's my dad when I was younger. Uh, but I do have a very specific memory of meeting my grandparents. Now, my mom says when I was a baby, she used to take me over there so I could get to know them. I don't remember any of that. My <laughs> first memory of them is when my mom, who was a single mother, and her parents were um, murdered when I was four. Oh, so she oh. didn't really have a family uh, background to help her. So she was kind of losing it as a single mother and needed a break. So she stuck me on a bus, uh, a half an hour bus ride from the suburbs into the city with a big red suitcase that I swear was bigger than me, but it, it wasn't. <laughs> and, and how old were you at this point? I was seven. <laughs> and I, oh, wow. think I have children like what? I mean, it's just a different day and age. She did tell right. the driver where I was supposed to get off in downtown Seattle. And she said, look for a big black man in a red car, get off in front of the Bon Marche, which is a department store, was a department store here. And I got off the bus at the right spot and sat down and waited and nobody came. And uh, I started crying. I went into the house, my grandmother, and she said, girl, get back out there. He's been looking for you. You know, there's no cell phone (sighs) back then. Uh, And sure enough, a man in a 
old red car pulls up and is like, I couldn't see you sitting on that suitcase. Get in the back of this car right now. And so I got in and it was a bit of a culture shock for me my first week with my grandparents. Um, you know, different way of talking, different foods, different social interactions. It took me a while to adjust. But Do you remember any certain foods or certain words that particularly stood out? Oh, I got so much trouble for when I was a little bit older for saying the word ain't. Like I mm-hmm. really great once when I came back from staying with them. I will not say ain't. And she made me do it a thousand times. <laughs> oh, wow. And you, you get good. And I know a lot of people who grow up um, who are biracial or multicultural at kind of having a switch where you can be in one culture and then switch to be in the other culture. My... Um, Kenny, my the man on my birth certificate, his brother, TJ, was a prominent person in the community. Uh, he was the head of the Seattle School Board for a number of years, and he was really good at it. I used to watch him, you know, go into a room, and depending <laughs> on the group that was in there, you know, he, he fit right into their expression, kind of how they held themselves. Yeah. It's definitely an art. Um, but I love my grandparents. Uh, my grandfather was a lot like a father to me. So... I grew up in these two different worlds. Okay. So you, you had no, did you, you stayed with your mother, but you said you, you, your uncle in the school district, did you ever move in closer there, have much more interaction with him? Cause you said you watched him do some things. Yeah, we interacted some. I stayed with his family. He had three kids around my age as well. Uh, so I would hang out with them sometimes when, um, my mom and I moved from the suburbs where I was stuck on the bus into the city when I was in the fifth grade my mom decided that I could have access to better programs if I was black. So she changed my race from white to black. Oh, wow. Moved in on the form because I used to have to designate that. Yeah. And did you, did you think anything of it or how did you feel? I didn't until the secretary called me down into the principal's office and and had the form in front of her. And she's like, you don't look black. (laughs) And I was like, well, I am. And she said, well, I'm going to change you to white. And I said, well, you better not. My uncle's the president of the school board and you'll have to answer to him. And I had the same last name Vassar at the time as my uncle, TJ Vassar. So she shrugged her shoulders and and let me be. So race (laughs) definitely played a role. Uh, It's it's a complex issue, of course. Uh, Yeah. In in my growing up, you know, there's there's often you're not, I, I was just a hint too dark to fit into the white side of my family and definitely too white to fit into the black side of my family. So I never really felt like I fit in anywhere. Yeah. Interesting. How old were you and what inspired you to take a DNA test? I had wondered where in Africa my ancestors came from. TJ, my uncle, had uh, some letters from a woman who had done some research Uh, tracing our ancestors back to three slave brothers who came from Africa who were sold in Texas. So I was just, I, I love genealogy. I love traveling. I thought, you know, it'd be great. I had three boys. Let's take a trip to Africa. We'll discover our roots, but you know, where should I go? So I took a DNA test or an ancestry test an over the counter test. And I asked, my dad, who we'd become friends at this time, I said, dad, will you do this test? And he said, Oh, I don't know, baby, if I want to do that. And I said, please, it's really important to me. So he did. Um, and I got my results first. I was, it was two days before my 44th birthday. 
when my results came in. And I think I've said this many times to people, it's kind of like any major news event, you know, you know where you were, if you were alive when Kennedy was shot or for me when the space shuttle blew up. I think everybody knows where they were when they open their results and mm-hmm. know something's terribly wrong. I was going to say, where were you when I was in night? bed? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind of looking for your results. You're excited, right? Yeah. Uh, and, I get it and it shows you get your little pie chart on the front, right? And it shows I'm half something, which I thought, great. Yeah, that's right. I'm half African. Sure. Which, of course, is a gross over uh, um, generalization because there is no half African, right? You're Nigerian or or something. But um, when I clicked on it, it said I was half uh, 50% Ashkenazi Jew. And you're like, and what? You're like, wait a second. <laughs> it's like being punched in the gut. Um, you know, and, and your brain takes a lot, to, time stops. And your brain's like processing. It's like there's a, it's like, a cog and there's something stuck in there and it's like trying to move forward, but it just doesn't make sense. And just to confirm your mother was not Ashkenazi. Well, Jew, no. Jewish, and as far as you knew and half Jew, half anything. She was German and, um, Scandinavian, although her, mm-hmm. her father died when she was nine months old. So she didn't know actually that much about her history as well, but Jewish never came up at all. I didn't even think my mother mm-hmm. knew anybody who was Jewish. And I'd never met anybody who was Jewish. Um, wow. So I tried to call her because she was in Arizona and I'm in Washington. And she didn't answer the phone. I mean, I laid in bed for a very long time um, crying because you realize there's only one reason that I'm showing up half Jewish. There's only one conclusion to that. I mean, and of course you go through your head, they must've switched the test. Right. So I log on and I see some of my mom's relatives on there as matches. Uh, So then you're like, mixed up part of my test. (laughs) Right. Right. Is this this the bargaining phase of uh, (laughs) grief? Yeah. (laughs) You know, the weirdest part for me was, you know, I laid in bed, I cried, you're puffy, you're confused, you're shaky, uh, your world, your foundation is gone. And I go into the bathroom to wash my face, then I look in the mirror, and I just, I, I stare. It's, it's like, who is that person? Where did I come from? Who's me now? This, it's an intense, for me, identity crisis. And I think for many who have these discoveries, you just mm-hmm. you have no idea I know reading, I don't know if you've read um, Heritage, I think is the book where she takes DNA tests and finds out that she's not uh, 100% Jewish as she expected, but that her parents had used a donor and she talks about staring at her her face in the mirror for a long time and doing that growing up as well. It's hard. I mean, and I couldn't for months, it felt like I could not look in the mirror for longer than just a moment. I'm lucky I eventually did discover who my birth father was. But my heart aches for those out there who have not. They don't get those answers because, I mean, life does go on and you have to move on. Um, How did you discover who your uh, birth father was? I had a second cousin match, uh, a predicted second cousin or first cousin match. And I built a tree for him. I reached out to him and he never responded back to me. Uh, eventually I spoke with his father and uh, he was super 
kind and sharing when he thought I was related to his side of the family. But as really? soon as I realized I was related oh, no. to his wife's side of the family, uh, they stopped interacting with me. Interesting. Oh. I, I think it's funny and worth pointing out here that a lot of people think, especially in the context of being a sperm donor, well, I'll just never take a DNA test. So then I know it will find me. So I don't need to worry about DNA tests. But it, it often is like this, right? Where it's a, a second cousin that takes it and that's enough to kind of do do the math or do the tracing to, to figure Did we, out. We went to some talk somewhere and they said something like you could have a fifth order relative and still be able to track people back as to who the a first order relative was, which is absolutely fascinating in how DNA tracking can go. Well, that's why I tell everybody there's no such thing as an anonymity anymore in anything um, related to conception because you may not have taken a test and your first degree relatives may not have taken a test, but I guarantee your cousin's uncle's brother did. And right. so, uh, you can find that, you know, you can find people that way. It, you mm-hmm. know, and I will say when I first built the tree to find my birth father, I built it wrong. <laughs> um, oh. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot of trial and error in that. And you, you know, you learn from your mistakes going mm-hmm. forward and you become an expert in DNA. DNA painter is a great tool because it can predict your relationships. If you put in how many centimorgans you share with a match, it will tell you the percentage likelihood. Wow. How you're related to them. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so your second cousin trail, that sounds like that fizzled out. But so no. how did you, how were you successful? Or was that actually how you did find that it? That is how I did it. So I, when I okay. realized I had built the wrong tree um, and corrected the mistake, uh, I saw a picture of a man on the tree who was in his 70s. And I looked, ju- I mean, I, I fell out of my chair when I saw a picture of him online. I was like, oh my God, that is my father. I mean, I had never looked like anybody in my entire life, really. I, I look like my mom some, but definitely not like my dad. Uh, my birth certificate dad, my BCF is what we say. I would hold up a picture of each of them and me, and I would be like, well, if you squint, I guess I look like them both. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just an overwhelming sense to see a picture of someone and think, yeah, that's where I come from. And how, I mean, how do you identify yourself now? And how do you reconcile kind of this culture that you were brought up with and this truth that you, you understood for four plus decades to now what you know to be very different? It's really difficult to reconcile that. I work on it not necessarily daily anymore. I definitely did daily for, gosh, a year and a half. It's been two years. So it's just in the past six months that I'm feeling more comfortable in my skin again. You know, being half black is, is 44 years of my life experience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I had the issue where I I can't even remember what it was for, but I was somewhere and they asked my race on one of those forms again. I couldn't do it. I started crying and I left the room. Oh, wow. Um, because checking black felt like a lie, but I I don't feel white. Um, and so it's, it's hard to figure out how to classify yourself uh, after that. So now I say, well, I was raised yeah. half black. Um, so I don't know that portion of who I am. Um, Have your children been pretty affected by it as well? 
So I uh, am a firm believer in being open with your kids. We're open about finances. We're open about sexuality. Um, and so I, I didn't want to hide from them because I was so devastated. Yeah. What's going on? Right. And so, um, I, I will say the hardest thing that I've done is going to my birth certificate father's Kenny's house to tell him because he was going to get his results soon. Right. You mentioned that, that he was yours first. Father. And at first I wasn't going to tell him, but I have a really bad poker face and I needed help <sighs> processing yeah. uh, what was going on. And my mom, now moms in these issues range huge right? I was I was I was actually holding that question I was like I want to know how your mom reacted right and like how all of that was through this I was, yeah. I was just going to tell a point anything like, you want to tell I, me I'm mom? curious yeah <laughs> exactly you know it's interesting the whole because I'm in a support groups there's you know plenty of Facebook groups for MPE discoveries um yeah and so hearing the other stories, moms are all over the place. And I know I am grateful because my mom didn't, I've heard the DNA is lying. And my mom did not say that. And she said, well, you know, she did finally, she didn't even call me on my birthday. I was like, really, mom? She (laughs) called me the day after that. And I said, mom, I got my test results. And it shows I'm Jewish. (laughs) She's like, what? So she said, well, I, I guess it must be true. And I said, so what happened? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's something you want to tell me? And she said, I really thought Kenny was your father. She said, Kenny left <clears throat> and I was sad. And um, I was 18 years old and I wanted to drink, to drown my sorrows. And so I went to a bar and met a guy and we fooled around, but I really didn't think I got pregnant. And then Kenny came back a few weeks later to get his stuff. We had one last, you know, hurrah. And he left uh, with another woman to go to Alaska. And so when I found out I was pregnant, I just assumed it was his. And I'm not, I have a feeling that when she was, you know, 18, she probably knew the truth. But by she had later told herself must be Kenny's. And then I became Kenny's. So in her mind, that was the truth for so many years. When you I mean, especially, but with you being questioned so often yourself with people saying, you're not, you're not black, you, I'm sure she probably got similar questions, right? That would make her question it. You know, I don't know if she did. I've, we haven't really talked about that. It's kind of an interesting approach. I mean, she, she I, the reason I think she knew originally way back in is, you know, she was very concerned about being married when I was born. And, you know, she always told me, well, I was married when you were born. So you have a father. And I, I brought that up to her and she's like, I never said that. And I'm like, well, how would I, why would I even come up with that if you hadn't said that, you know? So I do think, you know, very early on, she probably had an inkling, but she told herself a certain truth and then it became the truth. And so what, what's hard in these situations is it took me about nine months to tease the full story out of her. And she's definitely been, was uncomfortable talking about it. And there's a lot of shame in these, in being an MPE for the children. You know, it's not my fault. I didn't choose my parents, but we get blamed. The moms feel an intense amount of shame depending on 
the circumstances and the dads might, you know, if you have donor conception, the dads feel shame because they couldn't, can, there's so much shame for every aspect of this. Um, yeah. so trying to push through that shame, um, is really tough sometimes. And while often it can be an element of kind of that relationship or approaching the person you're now closely genetically related to, that wasn't a choice for you because by the time you, you had done the CNA test, he was no longer around, right? He had passed. My birth father passed in 2007. It's been a journey to find him and to try and connect with the family because you know, we all want to know where we come from, what makes us us. I used to be a, a you know, nature versus nurture. I was on the nurture side. Uh, as I've done more research into genetics and DNA and met more MPEs and heard their stories, yeah. I'm leaning a little bit more in my own story now that I know more about my birth father. There's so many things about me that just never made sense. Interesting. And what do you have examples of that? Sure. Like in third grade, my mom couldn't help me with my math homework anymore. Um, I started a nonprofit in middle school wow. uh, called Kids, knowing it's definitely safer, doing AIDS education. Um, oh, wow. I had a business plan by the time I graduated from high school. I was a very, I fundraised by selling t-shirts. I could go to the Soviet Union. These were just, nobody in my family was like that at yeah. all. And my mom just, you know, she just did not, she said, I don't know where you come from. <laughs> and so, well, like I said, I thought that this man was my birth father who I found, Mark Rubenstein, because I looked just like him and he was the right age. But like I said, with DNA Painter, you can put in your relationships. And I did have a couple more matches around the Rubenstein family, nothing close, you know, third cousins, fourth cousins, etc. Uh, and another second cousin came mm -hmm. up, uh, agreed to do the test. And with the amount of DNA I shared with everybody, that first match turned out to be my first cousin once removed. And the other person who did a test, she was my second cousin. And if you look at the amount of DNA I shared, there was no way Mark Rubenstein was my um, father. He was my brother. Uh, wow. When I went wow. and met this second cousin, she looked at me and she said, oh my gosh, you're, you're Sam's daughter. And I said, yeah, he's my grandpa. And she's like, no, you look just like him. There's no way you're related to him more. And she was right. When we got the test back, it was clear that I was, I, I shared too much DNA with these people or, or not enough for Mark to be my father. It was definitely Sam. Yeah. So, wow. you know, I wish there was a a way to confirm a hundred percent, but having help with experts in this area, I feel confident that there's nobody else, uh, based on the, all the different d matches that I have that Sam is definitely my father. And did that cause more issues or different issues to say, Oh, it looks like Mark. And I don't know if Mark was married or like, wait, what there's this other so child, Mark a letter, which yeah. That's the hardest thing to do, right? To write somebody and say, hey, by the way, you might be my father. And he got my letter, incidentally, like on Father's Day or the day before. Oh, of course. <laughs> right? He has two children. Um, and he called me and said, I would love to help you find your family. And I, my heart's pounding oh. in my chest. And I'm like, find my family? Did you yeah. read the letter? <laughs> right, right. 
Um, and he said, but I'm sick. I'm very sick. And my memory's going. And he put me in touch with the second cousin who's, who told me I looked like Sam. Wow. And, so he didn't say no, it wasn't me. He just yeah. didn't know. Yeah. Interesting. And so uh, between the second cousin's help, um, I did reach out to him one more time later. And he said, I'm, I, I wish you would have found this out a year sooner, but I really just, I can't help you. And he passed away um, a year ago. So wow. Um, it's definitely a loss, but it's interesting. He was an economics um, professor at Berkeley, and I have a degree in economics. Uh, <laughs> and he loved to read, and I love to read. And there's this, I went to his funeral. I, I quietly um, entered in the back, sat for the funeral so I could hear the stories about him and left. So I, I wanted to be respectful of the family because the family has not wanted contact with me. They have shared a few pictures. Um, and that's frust- That's frustrating. Do they give any reason for that? I mean, I feel like so many people are just excited to find out there's more genetic relatives and right? to embrace that. It's upsetting when that's not the reaction. I've heard stories where, you know, people are, they're so happy to welcome in the MPE. Yeah. It reminds them of the lost relative, right? And there's so yeah. much, I, time and time again, I hear about common personality traits, um, not just physical looks, but also the person themselves. And so they kind of get to re-see that person who's passed in this new addition to the family. And, but in the flip side of that, I do have to say I understand. So my birth father, Sam Rubenstein, was a very prominent member of uh, the Seattle community. He was an active businessman and philanthropist. And so, um, I, you know, and I'm the product of an affair. Got it. And yeah. he was in his 50s and my mom was 18. Uh-huh. So there's, there's, there's a lot of stigma with yeah. that. Yeah. There's a lot of stigma with that. And I think about it like my husband's grandfather was a judge. And what would it be like if someone came forward and said, by the way, your grandfather, because, you know, the, so many people have passed, the people I'm talking to are his grandkids, right? Um, had an affair and I'm his long lost child. Like how would that make my husband's family feel to learn this about this man who was, you know, and it, we're, we're all faulty, but it's hard to see. <sighs> right. You like remind them of that or. Yeah. And in this case, I, I do think the fact that the family was influential and, and has a significant amount of money has played a role in their wariness of interacting with me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wish that my birth father was just, you know, the bank teller down the road. Cause I think the fact that he was so prominent, all of his friends are, you know, influential people that I can't even try to talk to. There's no, there's no avenue for me to reach out to some of these people. They're just not the type of people who would interact. So I want to circle back around. You talked about, and I, I think I interrupted you to talk about your mom how did your father that was your, that you knew as your father growing up, how did he take it? Cause you, you said you went to go tell him and then we never got to what actually happened at that point. I told him and it was super hard. I just burst into tears before I could even get it out. he's like, whatever it is, it's going to be okay. Um, and we had grown, we, we, you know, we visited a couple times a year. Um, 
you know, he would take his grandkids out, but his mother had passed away three years ago and he was diagnosed with a terminal illness and he needed help. And so we'd grown closer in dealing with that. And so he just said, look, it, it changes nothing for me at all. Oh, he, that's a great answer. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Um, and I know not everybody gets that answer. I've heard horrible stories of, of not that answer, but that's rare actually. Um, so he, he held my face in his hands and he said, but listen, you have a right to know your family history and where you come from and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So he was really my biggest advocate and encouragement in trying to find my birth family. And every time I would be rejected in sort of helping me to pick myself up, brush myself off, take a deep breath and reach out to another family member, um, to try to learn or family friend about who this man was, who gave, who is half of me, right. Who makes up half who I am. That's actually really incredible and heartening. That makes me really happy to hear. Like, it, yes, you had rejection from one side, but at least you had full love and acceptance from, from the other. Mm-hmm. Still. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, while I say, I wish he was the bank teller down the road, the fact that he was so prominent, I can read newspaper articles about him. And I have gone to some of the places that he's um, donated funds and there's pictures of him and information about him. I know people who can't even find a picture of their birth father. So um, it's a double. Pros and cons. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So I know you started a nonprofit when you were a child, but I, my understanding is you've been very active in this space as well afterwards to try to, to help others. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. My, like I said, my birth certificate father, Kenny, I swear it was almost daily. He said, you have a right to know. You have a right to know. I was asked to do a TV interview uh, and to invite some other MPEs to talk about how doing a DNA test can um, create these identity crises for our people. And so I asked donor conceived gentleman to go with me and then adopted gentleman and another MPE like me. And the interview was very powerful. One of the most interesting aspects of it was at the end, she asked us, would you all do it again? And every single one of us said yes. Uh, And the reason I think DNA testing, while it does open Pandora's box for people, it does answer a lot of questions. So for example, this man who was adopted, who did the interview with me, he didn't know his ethnicity ever. And when um, he took his DNA test, he learned he was half Chinese, which was a shock. And when he did meet his, find his um, mother, he met his siblings and he said, there's no way we have the same father. (laughs) And so uh, he ended up finding his father who was Chinese from, you know, doing the DNA test. So these tests can help us fit the pieces together properly. So afterwards, after this interview, we all went to dinner and I wanted to change my birth certificate to reflect who my birth father was. I want future generations, when my kids, kids, kids do research, I want them to know their family heritage. I come from a rich heritage. My Jewish family has done some very interesting things. They've lived interesting lives. And I want my, my great, great grandkids to be able to find out that information. So I started researching the Uniform Parentage Act in Washington State. And when I read it, I was appalled. And it's new. It was, it's based on the new Uniform Parentage Act. 
but I was appalled at the treatment of donor conceived kids. They have no rights at all. So at dinner, we were talking about this and how there needs to be changes in the laws to help MPEs in the broad sense of MPE, adopted children, donor conceived people like me, you know, who are the product of an affair or even an assault. We, we need to have rights. And so three of us, the reason that one of them didn't is because he lives in Canada, started a nonprofit called Right to Know from my, my father's encouragement, trying to advocate for change in laws to help MPEs have rights. And so the nonprofit has kind of targeted ways to change the law so that, that those people who find out their heritage can change their birth certificate to match more closely with what they would, they would want it to or genetically? Ultimately, my goal in the birth certificate area is I think birth certificates should have four slots for genetic parents, two for genetic parents, and two, I call it supportive parents. There's not really a, a common term yet for this. But the people Use social are, sometimes yes. in the legal area, social parents. Yeah, the people who are resp- legally responsible for you and who... Mm-hmm. <laughs> And because I, it's not just donor conceived adopted kids or MPEs who have this issue. I'll use my mom as an example. You know, like I said, her biological father, her birth father died. He was killed by a drunk driver when she was nine months old and her mom remarried and adopted her. So she was issued a new birth certificate, right? And if nobody had ever told her about her original father, that information would be lost. And she would love to be able to have her biological father or genetic father and the man who raised her on her birth certificate. So I think there's a lot of this issue with stepchildren as well, being able to keep track of that. And I think as we learn more about genetics and how much it influences who we are, we, we want that information. We want access to that information. Yeah. Have you received a lot of pushback from those kind of the other side, especially on the donor front where people say, you know, donors have a right to be anonymous, which again, we know like technically it's not a real thing, but that kind of other right to be unknown, not Um, anonymous, unknown. So I fully disagree with that statement. Um, personally, I think that if you, and, and, you know, we could talk for hours. You do. Sure. (laughs) Um, and we right to know is really focused on donor conceived issue, especially the issue of fraud right now, because it's an issue that, when I talk about it with people, they're, they go, duh, that's not illegal. It should be. That's awful. The, mm-hmm. the fact that um, there's so much fraud in donor conception and not consequences to it. But I think that if you are willing to give the gift of a child to somebody, you have to be committed to that child's emotional well-being. We're making humans here. It's, we're not commodities. And so I think as a donor, you need to at least be able to provide genetic, historical family, not just genetic, but family information to that Mm. child. I think it helps with psychological development of knowing who you are and why you are, why you tick. Why, you know, my, my birth father was an entrepreneur. He owned a number of businesses. It makes sense why I'm like I am now. Um, And it did before. And so I, even in, in donor conception and adoption, those kids have the right to that information in my mind as well. Yeah. For people listening who are interested in kind of being involved with Right to Know or want to learn more, we'll definitely post the the website to when we post the, the episode. But is there any other suggestions of 
ways they can they can join or get involved with the organization or the, or the cause? We're trying right now to sort of be a, a focal point for changing laws in different states, especially in the uh, donor conception fraud area. So we have people in different states who are getting started. Like for example, we're starting. We've started in Washington. Uh, obviously, our times have slowed this down right now because. Um, it's not right. what we're focusing on at the moment, <laughs> um, but we're we're hoping that in every s- state we can try to push for changes in laws. And I think, like any change, once you have a number of states who have made that change, then you can focus on making federal changes uh, and more changes. Eventually, we would love to see that there isn't anonymity anymore, and that there are more regulations on the industry and donor conception, no anonymity for adoption and the change, like I said, in the, in the birth certificates. So people can write us, they can help us by writing letters to their um, Senator when we do, or Congress um, representative, when we do try to push for a change in their law, they can help by um, sending out education. Of course, people can always donate money. There's plenty of ways to help. And I think the biggest issue right now is just education. It's such a new area. Uh, You know, 20 years ago, there wasn't the DNA testing and you could stay anonymous. And I think looking at how adoption, how people viewed adopted kids and how it's changed in our society over over the past few years, how people have said it's definitely better to have an open adoption where the children know they're adopted. Um, I think we're seeing that now move into the donor conception area as well. Um, but I think education is definitely what we need right now more than anything. Makes sense. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and all that you're doing to, to help others and change the law as well. And we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to Cara for sharing her story, which is so crazy that that, that you would live a whole life one way and then learn out something, right? something so personal and so, you know, kind of part of your identity to be so different. Um, but we really appreciate all that she's done to, to share and to help others and to start an organization to, to help others as well. Um, I do have to do a correction of myself. Uh, I had mentioned a <laughs> book, that, which I love the book and I love the author. So I really apologize. I think I called it heritage or something but um the book i was referring to was inheritance a memoir yes. of genealogy paternity and love by danny shapiro who also so we, has we love her because podcast. we went to go i would say we went to go see her do a reading of that book and mm-hmm. totally creepy have a photo of us i know we should post that but uh <laughs> she has so she has a podcast too called family secrets which i really enjoy um and we have asked her to come on this podcast and um danny if you ever want to reconsider the invite is out there yes <laughs> Yes, still open, but it will be open for next season because we are going to take a few weeks break. Uh, We're going to enjoy time where we are not homeschooling our children uh, at the moment. And I am going to possibly move across the country sometime in that break there. 
and we will resume sometime later this summer. I, I don't think either of us feel comfortable committing to a timeline quite yet, but we will soon. be back. Be like soon. We promise. It won't be that long, but we will be back. And in we, the meantime, already, we already have some good, really good guests lined up for next season. Yes. So I'm excited. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, it's just that we just need a few weeks break. Like when, oh, I won't have any furniture around me to absorb extra sound. You know, the, the little things like that. Um, but no, we're in the meantime, we have obviously a huge and incredible back catalog. We would love to have you go back, listen, go to iTunes, leave us those reviews, do all of those fun things that we always ask that you do every time and reach out, of course, through our website, through Facebook. Um, I think we might have an Instagram. I, I'm not sure. I'm not hip on these things at the moment. Um, but there's so many ways to contact us. And we really do always appreciate it when people do reach out. Um, and I would like to do our final for this season. Thank you to everybody on our team who makes us sound incredible. Huge thank you to Tyler, to Amanda, to Lexi on our team, and to Chris, of course, Always, always, always huge thank you to Chris at Work at Bird Studios, who uh, edits us and makes us sound not as bumbling, as silly as we probably would without him. So thank you. And thank you to all of you for listening. 